0: Welcome to another ABI podcast. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's editor-at-large. We are coming to you today from ABI's annual spring meeting in Washington, D.C. For the next few minutes, we're going to be talking with Josephine Wang, the newly anointed president and CEO of the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, which has had the distinction of presiding over what, in my judgment, has been the remarkably successful liquidation of the Madoff-Ponzi scheme. First, a little something about Ms. Wang. She, like virtually everyone at Cipic, is a lifer. She joined sipic in 1983 and, about 20 years later, became sipic's general counsel, that is to say, in 2004. Just effective as of April 1, Ms. Wang became the president and CEO of CIVIC. Well, Ms. Wang, that's quite a uh, transition to change from being a general counsel to the CEO of an organization like sipic which is in charge of liquidating brokerage firms under the Securities Investor Protection Act, which largely adopts large swaths of the bankruptcy code. So tell me, Ms. Wang, have you adjusted yet to being a client instead of a lawyer?
1: Thank you, Bill. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today with you. Before we begin, I should issue the standard disclaimer on behalf of SIPC that any opinions that may be offered are, of course, my own and don't necessarily reflect those of SIPC. Of um, so the question is, have I adjusted to my new position? This is day five of week two, so I haven't had a lot of time. But as you know, Stephen Harbeck was the former president of SIPC. Uh, President and CEO, and he was in that position for a number of years and did a remarkable job uh, at times facing uh, just amazing challenges. Um, But I did work closely or had the opportunity to work closely with Steve, and so I feel very comfortable going from the position of general counsel to his former position of President and CEO. And I know I have big shoes to fill, but um, I'm looking forward to the challenges.
0: Well, all I can say is if you are anything as president like you were as counsel, it's going to be a wonderful experience because I got to observe you several occasions arguing at court. One time in particular, I remember in the Second Circuit, and you were brilliant. You were laser light. <laughs> Thank you. And very influential to the court. Before we start asking Ms. Wang about some of the important recent developments, I I'd like to give you a bit of a summary about what this Madoff liquidation is all about and the amount of money was involved. It is and was the single largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. Customers invested and therefore stood to lose about $20 billion. But that's just what they invested. The customers thought, based upon their fictitious account statements, that they actually had $64 billion, essentially, in the bank. In other words, they thought they were worth three times more than what they had invested in cash. This liquidation began in December of 2008, which means we are approaching 11 years. I recall at the outset that, personally, I thought this would be like your typical Ponzi scheme recovery, where customers would probably end up Was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 4 percent. But I'm happy to report, as you have consistently throughout the case, that so far, SIPPIC and your counsel and the trustee have realized recoveries and settlements of nearly 13.5 billion dollars. And you have already distributed more than 66 percent to customers to compensate them for their cash investments. And believe me, folks, this far exceeds anything that anybody ever would have guessed back in the early days of this liquidation. Now, Ms. Wang, I would like for us for the next few minutes to focus on something very important that happened in the Madoff litigation with an opinion from the Second Circuit on February 25 on an issue that you refer to as extraterritoriality. And the question was basically this. The Bankruptcy Code and SIPC allow for recovery of fraudulent transfers from an initial recipient of a fraudulent transfer. And as the courts have always held, anyone who receives a payment in a Ponzi scheme is the recipient of an actually fraudulent transfer, and therefore, it is very easy for a trustee to recover from the initial recipient. But that was not the situation when we're talking about extraterritoriality, because in the Madoff case, Madoff while conducting his Ponzi schemes, made distributions to hedge funds, or feeder funds as they're called, that were offshore in places like Cayman Islands, or I suppose perhaps Isle of Man, or anywhere offshore. Those feeder funds in turn made distributions, subsequent distributions, to their own customers, many of whom, at least allegedly, were also located Offshore. Now then, Cipic sues the subsequent transferees for their liability as subsequent recipients of a fraudulent transfer, and you brought these lawsuits, I believe, in bankruptcy court, did you not, Ms. Wang?
1: Well, actually, these were lawsuits that were brought by the trustee uh, for the liquidation of the Madoff case. Cipic oversees and works closely with trustees appointed under the Securities Investor Protection Act. But it is that statute SIPA, S-I-P-A, as we call it, um, that enables the trustee to bring these suits because it incorporates provisions of the bankruptcy code including the avoidance provisions. Yes. Well, by
0: the way, I suppose we ought to give credit where credit is due. And your trustee is Irving Picard and has been since the outset. And his chief outside counsel are from the firm of Baker Hostetler largely located in that firm's New York office. So, Ms. Wang, you mounted lawsuits against these subsequent transferees back in when, 2009?
1: Thereabouts. Okay.
0: Now, uh, they raised, they meaning the subsequent recipients, raised the defense of comedy and the argument that the long arm of the fraudulent transfer statute does not reach transfers abroad. Did the Bankruptcy Court rule on that issue?
1: It did, but it was following the lead of the District Court um, for the Southern District of well, New York. Well, okay. Now,
0: where did the first
1: ruling come from? From the District Court, after and the District Court withdrew the reference on a number of these cases.
0: I see. And this was which District Judge in New York?
1: That would have been Judge Rakoff. And what, it wa- or what was it
0: that Judge Rakoff ruled?
1: Well, ultimately, he held he held against the trustee that for E.T. extraterritorial extraterritoriality reasons and comedy reasons, the trustee could not bring the suits, uh, that these were outside the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts. But I, th- I think what we have to understand are the facts here, because what we're talking about are hedge funds that had opened accounts at the Madoff firm. Um, these were hedge funds that, or feeder funds that had their own sub-feeders, and so uh, the sub-feeders themselves, and tell me if this is getting a little bit too complicated, but the sub-feeders did not have accounts at BLMIS, however, let me try and give you an example. Um, so you have you have a hedge fund, let's call it Fairfield, that opens an account at BLMIS, and it has sub-feeders The sub-feeders have shares of Fairfield, but they themselves don't open their accounts. And then the sub-feeders have investors. And so almost all of the monies of all of these firms are invested in or through BLMIS. And so when when monies are transferred out of BLMIS to the sub-feeders, it's always customer money, money that belongs to other customers. Does that make sense? Yes, because it was stolen. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and so the trustee brings the avoidance actions against the against the initial transferees. And then because under Section 548 of the bankruptcy code, uh, because Section 550 of the code allows him to do so, he also sues uh, the subsequent transferees. So the monies that go from the initial transferee, the hedge fund, to its sub-feeders. to its sub-feeders.
0: Well, why couldn't you simply recover from the initial transferee, the hedge funds?
1: Because those monies have gone from the hedge funds to their sub Because they're, they're broke, in other words. Uh, well, yes. Yes, okay.
0: All right, so now you're going after the... Uh, subsequent transferees. Right. Under Section 550.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Uh, keep in mind that these are monies coming out of a U.S. bank account, being transferred to a hedge fund, and then the hedge fund is perhaps transferring the monies abroad, because that's where the sub-feeders are. Okay,
0: so what is it that Judge Rakoff ruled with respect to these subsequent transfers that appeared to occur abroad from a bank account, say, in the Cayman Islands, to another foreign bank account.
1: So he focused, or his focus was on the location of the subsequent transferees, and because these subsequent transferees were abroad, um, he, uh, he found that for ET or extraterritoriality reasons, um, the U.S. courts had no jurisdiction. Oh, this is very interesting.
0: So in other words, if Judge Rakoff is correct, what you're saying is a fraudster to insulate money from recovery by a trustee in the U.S. could first transfer money abroad and then the recipient transfers it again abroad and the U.S. courts are emasculated. Is that that essentially what it meant?
1: That is absolutely right. It's the recipe for laundering money.
0: (laughs) Okay, I like the way you put that. Well, Okay, so Judge Rakoff comes down with this opinion. And this killed a slew of lawsuits. I assume. How many lawsuits were you defeated in um, at that time?
1: Eighty-eight went up on appeal to the okay. Second Circuit.
0: And how much was involved? How much is at stake? In those. Yeah. Uh, The
1: trustee is probably looking at some number in excess of $3 billion.
0: I see. All right. So were you to recover most of that, that would bring you closer to 100% recovery from your customers. But who knows? Let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the law. All right. We have Judge Rakoff's ruling in, what was that, 2014, I think. Could you go to the Second Circuit at that time to try to reverse him?
1: No. The district court sent the cases back to the bankruptcy court, and the bankruptcy court Court issued its opinion basically following the guidelines that the district court had set out. Well, did,
0: uh, and this was bankruptcy, Judge Bernstein say anything to the effect of whether he thought he had much discretion in how to rule?
1: I think the answer is, is, is no.
0: Yeah, well, I would think so because, <laughs> sure. because uh, uh, I think by any understanding of the law, Judge Rakoff's ruling was binding on him. Alrighty. So when was it that we had a decision from bankruptcy judge Bernstein on remand?
1: That would have been in 2016.
0: Okay. And he dismissed the lawsuits against the subsequent. For answers. the most part. Yeah. For the most part. Okay. Alrighty. So now we're primed for a direct appeal to the Second Circuit. And I uh, would I be correct in guessing that the Second Circuit accepted a direct appeal? Uh, yes. Alrighty. So now we're in the Second Circuit. How long did it take them to hand down their decision?
1: Uh, that came down uh, in February of this year, 2019.
0: And when was the case? November
1: argued? 2018.
0: Well, <laughs> frankly, between you and me, by Second Circuit standards, that's not very long. That's you know, barely three months. So I guess they must have been uh, uh, primed and ready to go. Was the decision unanimous? It was. And who was it written by?
1: Judges uh, Jacobs, Wesley, and Pooler.
0: And who wrote the decision?
1: Judge Wesley. Well, tell me this. Who won and who lost? The trustee won, and the defendants did not. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: righty. Well, tell me, uh, Ms. Wang, uh, what is it that the Second Circuit ruled in this appeal on extraterritoriality?
1: The Court held that the focus was not on where the transferees were located, but because Section 550 refers to 548 and the focus of that statute is on the initial transfer, uh, the Court held that that was the important criterion. And because these monies had come out of a bank account in New York, it was a domestic uh, transaction, and therefore the U.S. courts continue to have jurisdiction. Um, and it's important to note, I think, that the courts have jurisdiction um, not only under the bankruptcy code. Uh, I mean, you can look at Section 541, which defines the estate and gives uh, the court's jurisdiction over property of the debtor no, no uh, wherever located, but also under SIPA. And
0: I think, if I recall correctly, Judge Wesley's opinion was
1: based, was it not
0: on the bankruptcy code, it not was. on CIPA? It
1: was. It was. But clearly, I think the court was looking at or understood that these are cases under the Securities Investor Protection Act and the purposes of that statute need to be considered um, and and carried out? Yeah.
0: Well, the reason I bring that out is uh, that in the future, it is possible that offshore subsequent transferees are going to argue that the Madoff decision from the Second Circuit is unique to SIPA and doesn't apply generally under the Bankruptcy Code, Mm -hmm. but is it your view that the Second Circuit's result would be the same if it were a pure bankruptcy case?
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think the court made that very clear, that it was deciding the matter under the Bankruptcy Code and not under SIPA, but nevertheless, I think it's also very clear that the purposes of SIPA were being carried out at the same time. I see. Well, you know, there was a second
0: argument that the defendants made, and that was based upon comedy. They were contending, uh, contending, and perhaps I will oversimplify, that the principle of comedy would advise a U.S. court not to set aside a subsequent transfer that really ought to be pursued by the court abroad, for instance, in the Cayman Islands. How did Judge Wesley deal with? Comity.
1: Well, first of all, you had no parallel proceeding that involved Madoff, so there was no conflict between a foreign court and a U.S. court. Um, and second of all, who had the greater interest here? The, the, the people, the customers of the U.S. brokerage whose funds had been stolen, or these investors in, in the hedge funds? Um, so clearly I think the greater interests weighed in favor of the U.S.,
0: well, so much for that. All right, so we have a marvelous, strong decision from the Second Circuit. Is it over, or do you believe that the defendants will end up filing a petition for certiorari to the Supreme Court?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it's not over by any means. The defendants uh, did ask for a rehearing en banc which the Second Circuit promptly denied. And they have now filed a motion uh, to have the mandate stayed and have indicated in their papers that they intend to petition the Supreme Court for for, cert, for certiorari.
0: Okay, well, so looking ahead, this is early April. So I'm guessing that the petition for certiorari should begin in 60 to 90 days. You can respond afterwards. And by the way, I'm calculating it's very possible that the petition could be before the justices for consideration at what they call the long conference before the new term begins in October. Could take a little longer, but I suppose we might have an answer, therefore, to Certiorari on this extraterritoriality issue sometime in the fall of 2019. Well, by the way, Ms. Wang, the Supreme Court typically grant certiorari in one or two circumstances. Number one, whether there is a constitutional issue involved, and for the life of me, don't see that here, or they will grant certiorari if there is a split among the circuits. Do you have any opinions on whether there is a circuit split on this issue?
1: There's not at all. uh, Well, I have an opinion, yes, of course. Um, And there is no split among the circuits. In fact, uh, the Second Circuit's decision is fully consistent with a decision that was rendered by the Fourth Circuit in the case of inray French. Um, and there's no overwhelming policy issue or question that is inconsistent with uh, the law of the Supreme Court. And so our hope would be that the Supreme Court will deny cert as promptly as the Second Circuit rendered its decision. Okay,
0: well, uh, very good. Listen, let's talk briefly about another issue that... Judge Rakoff decided and that has to do with either the good faith or the lack of it of uh, subsequent defendants and that under the bankruptcy code is important because uh, if you are a subsequent recipient in good faith, you're only exposed to recovery uh, for two years. But if you're not in good faith, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're exposed to the recovery of transactions going back as far as six years. Correct. Now, did Judge Rakoff make any rulings on what the good faith standard is on this two-year versus six-year recovery
1: question? Sure. He set a very uh, high, uh, an unusually high standard uh, for the trustee to meet and basically put the burden on the trustee as opposed to the party on whom it should have been. So I think that is uh, an issue that is coming up um, and that will be of uh, great interest and is likely to go up. And could you tell me,
0: please, Ms. Wang, roughly speaking, how did Judge Rakoff frame the issue?
1: So the standard would be actual knowledge uh, by, uh, by the party being sued. I'll leave it at that.
0: Did he have something to say about, I think, what he characterized as willful blindness, if you didn't have actual knowledge?
1: So even if there um, are red flags that indicate uh, that there might be a fraud, you don't have any obligation to look into them. You basically have to willfully blind yourself to the circumstances.
0: I see. And so in other words, Judge Rakoff's standards is not yet final in a Madoff liquidation. It still is subject to further appeals and litigation to the Second Circuit. Right?
1: I think we're looking for the right case to take it up on appeal. I see. Okay.
0: Well, that certainly is going to be a barn burner. I can't wait. Now, let's look at this from 100,000 feet, not just uh, 35,000 feet. These lawsuits against these subsequent recipients are now what? Nine years old? They're Give abouts. or take? They're That's right. Now, if I recall correctly, Courts have the ability, if not the discretion, if they enter a judgment in a case like this, to grant prejudgment interest. Has CIPIC made any decisions about whether, should you get a judgment, you'll
1: pursue prejudgment interest? Well, that'll uh, be a decision for the trustee who's brought these lawsuits uh, to make. But certainly, I would assume uh, it would be in in consultation with CIPIC. And given the the amount of time that the um, victims whose, whose money was misappropriated and misused have been waiting to get their funds back, I would think it would be a course that he would be inclined to follow. Well,
0: um, assuming that lightning strikes and you are granted prejudgment interest, uh, is this bubkus or could it be a substantial amount of money in relation to the principal amount of the judgments you hope you might get?
1: It can be a very sizable amount depending upon how it's calculated and from what date it's calculated. I would hope that, or I would expect that the trustee would look for uh, the the largest or the, the highest um, percentage to be applied, and if that's under the New York state law, we're looking at potentially as high as 9%. And
0: if it were 9% prejudgment interest, what would that uh, represent in terms of enlarging the total amount of the judgments.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm going to. Spe- I'm not going to speculate on an actual number, but I will say it will be very, very sizable.
0: Well, you know, it uh, by my own back-of-the-envelope calculations, if you hit a home run, it could double the judgments. And one wonders whether the defendants will take that into consideration if they ever decide to undertake settlement negotiations with the trustee and the city. Ms. Wang, this has been exceedingly enlightening, and I thank you for telling us about that exceptionally important decision from the Second Circuit back in February Mm -hmm. on extraterritoriality, because that gives enormous powers of recovery to bankruptcy trustees everywhere, and I'm also very grateful for your explaining how the very important standard of good faith is still very much up for grabs, and I suppose if we all live long enough... (laughs) We will eventually have a follow-up decision from the Second Circuit uh, on that issue. But I must say, so far, the appeals court has been coming down on your side because it was uh, the Second Circuit also that affirmed the methodology that you developed for the calculation of a customer claim. And I just Net before equity. we end, I- I'd like to ask you about that because, as we said at the outset, The customer's last statements from Madoff showed that they had or were owed $64 billion. Is that what you calculated to be the proper amount of a customer's claim, what was shown on the account statement?
1: No, the, the court agreed, the Second Circuit agreed with the trustee and with SIPC that the proper method of calculation was money in, money out. Okay. So you look at how much money the investor put in versus how much money the investor uh, might have taken out. I see. So it's an actual loss as right. opposed to a fictitious or uh, imaginary loss.
0: And so, in other words, the actual losses were neighborhood $20
1: billion. Possibly as high as $20 billion. I see. And, and,
0: as we said, the Second Circuit upheld your formulation for customer claims. Is that right?
1: Yes, and it has done right by customers.
0: And by the way, folks, that issue was very hotly litigated with some of the finest lawyers and law firms on earth taking positions opposite you, but Sipic and the trustee prevailed. Ms. Wang, again, thank you very much uh, for taking your time to explain these very important issues to ABI's audience. And to the audience, we thank you for joining us in this edition of ABI's podcast. And we will be back to you again shortly with even more.